Welcome to the second in our series of legal biography uh, talks, public lectures. Um, well, this evening it's a, a panel uh, to talk about judicial biography, and who better to uh, introduce the panel and to moderate the events than the judge, Right Honourable Lord Roger, one of the uh, law lords uh, shortly Supreme Court Lords, is that right? So I will hand over to you to introduce our very eloquent panel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> well, ladies and gentlemen, the, the title uh, I see written up here is a panel discussion, yes, on judicial biography, but uh, using Section 3 of the Human Rights Act, um, <laughs> we are going to give that a an extensive interpretation and uh, make the title fit um, the uh, panel uh, as, as well as the other way around. And we're going to extend it a little bit to include uh, not only judicial biography, uh, but um, I think permissive references to other biographies because we have two very distinguished uh, legal biographers uh, who, are not who are not concerned uh, primarily uh, with judicial uh, biography. Um, if I may start by introducing Nicola Lacey, who I think really doesn't need any introduction to this audience. She's, of course, Professor of Criminal Law here in the LSE. But she is here tonight primarily in her role as the biographer of Herbert Hart, a biography which I must say I read with enormous pleasure and I think that was reflected by nearly everybody who read it was really uh, a wonderful thing and most interesting uh, biography so she is of course going to be speaking from not just on judicial biography but on that wider uh, topic um, then we have uh, Professor Lisa uh, Jardine I've got to get the name of her centre correct and it is the Research Centre for Editing Lives and Letters but she tells me that at present uh, she is um, working at the Royal Society uh, on uh, their archives. And that comes about because she uh, wrote a biography uh, of Robert Hooke and was therefore uh, asked to go uh, to the Royal Society, and that's what she's doing at the moment. But she has a, a most uh, uh, distinguished career in uh, the fields uh, of biography and other studies, and we're very grateful to her for coming along to contribute that more general uh, uh, view. Uh, then we have um, Geoffrey uh, Lewis, who tells me that I have just to describe him as an author, and uh, he uh, is in particular well known to this audience, I'm sure, uh, first of all as the author of the biography uh, of Lord Atkin, uh, which was, I think, in many ways a pure judicial biography, and then we had uh, the biography of Lord Hailsham, which touched on judicial matters, but in the nature of Lord Hailsham's career on many other aspects too, in fact, primarily on the other political aspects of his life. Uh, and he also most recently uh, wrote a biography of Lord Carson. Again, uh, comes into the judicial uh, sphere at the, the end of his life, uh, but was primarily uh, had other political and uh, legal uh, aspects to his career. Uh, and uh, so he comes into both uh, legal and into judicial uh, biography. Uh, and uh, finally, we have Professor Neil Duxbury, uh, who is uh, now, he tells me, Professor of Law, no a particular kind of law, the whole of law uh, here at, uh, at the LSE, uh, formerly at the University of Manchester. And uh, he is uh, known for, in particular, uh, for his uh, biography, biographical study, and general study uh, uh, of uh, Pollock, Sir Frederick Pollock. I, I think in many ways a neglected figure, um, uh, in somebody who's gone sort of out of fashion and uh, Neil Duxbury has done a great deal to, to rehabilitate him and bring him back to attention. So that's the uh, panel we've got and uh, they've been clamouring to go first and so uh, the person who won the competition uh, was uh, Nikki Lacey so we'll ask her to go first. Thank you Alan. Um, well, I really am here under false pretenses because uh, if any of you know anything about Herbert Hart, you'll know that not only was he certainly not a judge, but he was a pretty reluctant lawyer. He was someone who was in fact trained as a philosopher, 
but um, practice as a lawyer during the 1930s. And uh, when I when I confessed to, to Hugh Collins this morning that I had misread my brief and thought it was legal biography, not judicial biography, he said, well, Herbert was on the Monopolies and Mergers Commission, and I thought about making a pitch for this as a judicial appointment, but I thought that those of you who are really lawyers here might see this as a slightly LSE kind of view of the law. Anyway, um, I was fortunate enough to be given unrestricted access to Herbert Hart's papers, and they, they were tremendously interesting, at least to me. But I thought what I would um, talk about today, since I think some of you who are here tonight were here last week to hear Lord Bingham in conversation with, with Ross Pranston, I thought I would try to address the question of what, what difference does it make to writing or indeed reading a biography or thinking about biography to say that it's a judicial or more generally legal biography? What counts as a legal biography? I'm not really sure that my biography of Hart does count as a legal biography, but here are a couple of ways in which um, one might think about that with some anecdotes to illustrate. Um, I, I was, um, had no experience in writing biography at all when I took this project on, and, and uh, due to the complete emptiness of the Blackwell's how-to shelf on biography, um, I, I realised I had to go back to sort of first principles and think, well, what skills can I bring to this? And I thought, well, I'm sort of roughly speaking trained as a social scientist. What does that make me think about the world? Well, I think of the world as made up of individuals all related to each other, but also as made up of social institutions. And so I really did approach writing a biography very much as a social scientist, and I really thought about heart, this interesting individual life, which is at the core of, of a biography, um, as itself both shaped by a number of broad social vectors, very large vectors like sort of macro social and historical forces. For example, in his life, a very important one was the Second World War, as for many people of his generation, by more intangible structures like gender or class or ethnicity or religion or lack thereof in his case. Um, and then by more concrete institutions, uh, the profession you belong to, the place where you work, and then of course by your family, your friends and so on. But of course, if a life is worth writing, then equally that life is going to radiate out back onto not just family, friends, colleagues, pupils, but also the social institutions and profession within which you work. And I think that gives us one handle on which, with which we might begin to think about what would count as a legal biography. Um, I was very struck when I was listening to Lord Bingham last week, and I suspect other people would have been as well, by the very clear way in which uh, what he had to say to Ross reflected, although he didn't always make this explicit and perhaps wasn't even completely aware of it, none of us are completely aware of what really shapes our attitudes, but of how the whole culture of the legal profession and of legal practice shaped the way he thought about his career. In other words, being a lawyer is not just about knowing rules and doctrines and principles. It's about knowing how to behave in a certain context, knowing how to deal with colleagues and clients and, and so on and so forth. It brings with it certain kinds of bodily comportment, all sorts of things that aren't very tangible. So let me just try to illustrate that with a story about Hart. Hart was from a, a Jewish family, um, second generation. His parents were tailors in the north of England. He was sent to a public school, Cheltenham College, which he absolutely loathed. And just as he was about to run away, he was um, saved by the fact his father's business took a downturn. Um, so he was lucky enough then to be sent to Bradford Grammar School, which he loved, and he got a, a scholarship to, to uh, New College in Oxford from there, and excelled academically and ended up going to the bar. So he was someone who did not come from uh, what we might call a traditional upper-class sort of, as they would say in America, wasp let alone hunting, shooting, and fishing kind of background. And in my analysis of Hart, I pay quite a lot of attention, place quite a lot of emphasis on the way in which he struggled to try to feel and invite <coughs> these very posh institutions within which he was 
operating, first of all, Oxford University, where, by the way, he claimed never, as a student, ever to have encountered anti-Semitism. This was 1926. There was something like 40 Jewish students across the university. It's entirely implausible that he never came across, as it were, some anti-Semitism. And in fact, he did then come up with some anecdotes. But he felt he had to assimilate and deny any sort of experience of prejudice. I think he must have experienced a similar sort of pressure to, um, to uh, conform when he was at the bar. That's the only way I can make sense of the fact that a man who was extraordinarily and visibly physically gentle and a sort of unaggressive man took himself off as vividly described in Richard Wilberforce's, uh, Lord Wilberforce's autobiography on a stag hunting weekend in the middle of the 1930s. And he was also, by the way, someone who, who was notoriously shambolic, both in terms of his physical coordination and his dress. And yet his own diaries are full of a detailed description of the outfit that he wore going stag hunting who invited him, a man who was very powerful in the legal profession. This was obviously what you did at weekends if you were a thrusting young commercial lawyer, which is what he was. So there's just an anecdote about the way in which trying to fit yourself into a profession can actually shape the, the conduct of a life. Of course, Kate Middleton's been doing the same thing. Are you going to do her biography? <laughs> in the other direction, um, it's one of the difficulties of writing biography is that it's very tempting to be a bit sort of quick off the mark with your causal claims about how far your chap or chapess affected the world around them. And it's actually very hard really to prove exactly what impact anybody has had on the law unless they're a judge. And that, I think, would be where a judicial biography would be rather special. But I think it's fair to say that Hart's very eloquent and moving writing about, the, as he put it, the cruelty of coercively regulating homosexuality. He was a man who felt himself to be homosexual, although he, as it were, lived as a heterosexual. Um, the very eloquent way in which he wrote about this uh, did have an impact on the changing climate, which ultimately led to the, the incomplete solution of the uh, Wolfenden Report. So, those would be my my sort of opening thoughts. Thank you. Um, Neil? I, I, um, <coughs> I, I'm, if Nicky shouldn't be here, I really shouldn't be here, because yeah. I, I haven't written a biography. Um, I, I've written various works with biographical elements, but nothing to do with judges, to do with lawyers. Um, and uh, as you heard, the main thing I wrote was something about a man called Frederick Pollock, um, and I didn't intend to write about Pollock, I just drifted into writing it as I do with all things that I write. He was famously sort of shy, taciturn, no social skills, so I thought I could identify with him. <laughs> it made sense to me. Um, and also he never wrote any great work as such. He wrote good works, works that synthesised areas of law, that were very good in their time for... for setting out the basic principles of certain areas of law, but no path-breaking, defining work uh, in the way that some of his contemporaries did. And I was quite interested by that, I suppose. Um, and so I, I, I sort of got dragged into his work, his life, because of that, to some degree. But I didn't write a biography, and I never set out to. And indeed, whenever I write anything biographical, it's always for the same reason. It's because nobody else has, and I want to understand somebody's ideas. That is, I want to know why they did what they did. Um, and Really, I come at these issues as a sort of consumer. Um, I sort of took the remit seriously tonight, in a way, I suppose, and said, <coughs> so, well, why is it that we want judicial biographies? What's the value of those? Um, and I suppose beyond the obvious fact that judicial biographies will be interesting sometimes because the lives that you write about are interesting, and if you write about them well, then it's good entertainment. Beyond that, for me, the reason that you want judicial biographies is because... Um, you sometimes want to understand why people did the things that they did. Um, certainly in the area that I've taught for most of my career, legal philosophy, jurisprudence, there are some crazy people who came up with some crazy ideas that make no sense to me at all until I get some sense of what their lives were about. 
democracy will have somebody who dedicated 90 years of their lives to trying to show that law is a, certainly all their adult life, to showing that law is a science. Who wants to do that? But then when you understand their background, where they came from, what their educational system was, it starts to make sense. With judges, it seems to me to be slightly different, but, but you can maybe see the point that sometimes... Well, let me give you two examples. Um, we sometimes find in English um, jurisprudence courses, if any undergraduates are here who've done any jurisprudence yet, they may have encountered this. Um, sometimes there seems to be a, a gap between the sorts of questions that law professors, legal philosophers ask about law and those that judges ask about law. A classic question that um, we academics ask is what makes law bind? What's, what creates the binding force of law? But you don't often find judges asking that question. When judges do write um, papers about the nature of law, they're usually asking different questions, such as, well, given that law is binding, why is it that it's still the case that judges can make law? How can we reconcile those two things? In fact, it's a, it's a, law, it's a judge with a strong connection with the LSE, Lord Wright, who made that point very clearly um, in, in, in one of his articles meant in the middle of the 20th century when he said, you know, the, the fundamental conflict... The fundamental question to explain is why it is that judges are bound by precedent and yet somehow can create things out of precedent. How can we reconcile those two things? And often what we find in judicial speeches is some sense of, well, why is it that we can... What's the limits of our lawmaking function? Whereas academics haven't really been interested in that question all that much. Um, Certainly there's a body of legal thought called legal realism which is based upon the the idea that judges can create law. But that's something different from what judges tend to say, certainly within common law jurisdictions, which is, yes, given that we can create law, how is it that we can still talk in terms of law having binding force? What explain, how can we reconcile those two things? Let me give the second example um, of how I think judicial biography can be very useful. Um, I was writing something recently which was, um, it, it concerns the overruling of precedents in final courts of appeal. Um, and the classic argument that comes out in the academic literature about overruling in the Supreme Court in the United States and the House of Lords here, for example, is that the judges who will be inclined to overrule um, earlier decisions are what we might call formalist or conservative judges, that is judges who, sorry, realist judges. Uh, the, the judges who are more inclined to overrule will be realist judges, that is those judges who believe that law is largely a matter of instinct rather than following the rules as laid down. And that's the classic academic argument, that realist judges are more likely to overrule. And I was doing some work, and what I actually found is that certainly in the United States, in the Supreme Court, in matters of constitutional adjudication, it's usually those judges who are described as conservatives or formalists who are more inclined to overrule. Now, I should stress that overruling is much more prevalent a phenomenon in the Supreme Court in the United States than it is here, even after 1966. So... Overruling is something that judges will do in the United States, whatever, the, whatever camp they fit in. But the fact of the matter is that it's more common for those judges who are seen as formalist or conservative judges, people like Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, it's more likely that they will overrule precedents than so-called realist judges who are known to act on their instincts and say, never mind what the law says. And I couldn't figure that. I couldn't figure that out. And certainly in the academic literature, that isn't what you would have expected because academics predict that realists are more likely to overrule than formalists. Why should that be? Well, I started to look at some of the biographies of U.S. Supreme Court judges. And what very clearly comes out in these, these biographies is that those judges who do claim themselves to be conservatives or formalists and are very much inclined to overrule will often say this, they'll say, yes, I'm overruling a precedent, but that's because when the last person overruled that precedent, they got it wrong, they acted on their instincts. I'm putting the law back on the right track. In overruling, I'm not departing from the law, I'm actually following the law. It's the last Egypt who moved away from it. And so, only by looking at judicial biographies, and autobiographies in particular, do you get any sense of why it is that, what the judicial motivation is there. And so as with legal biographies, so with judicial biography. They're important, I think, because it's only by looking to what these people have to say about themselves or what those who have analysed their lives have to say about them that we can get some sense of their motivations. 
And sometimes that's important because judges, like law professors, can say some weird things. Weird for about a week, and then they start to gnaw at you, and you want to know why they said that, and why it is that somehow it seems like a good idea. Without judicial biography, without biography generally, you just don't get that. Jeffrey. Um, the first thing that strikes one about judicial biography in England is that it's so rare. Uh, the, there are plenty in, in the United <coughs> States, but why have the, the great figures of the 20th century not been written about? Denning, Wilberforce, um, Reed, and so on. Uh, and it's not clear to me even now why that should be so. But one possible reason is that uh, in writing about Lord Atkin, um, it seemed to me that his private personality and character was completely separate from his judicial um, character insofar as that can be derived from his decisions. Uh, the English judge is trained to, and may I add the Scottish judge as well, is trained to leave uh, his prejudices in the robing room. Uh, the American judge is not. And I think that, it's very, that that is done very successfully. Uh, and so it's quite difficult to find out anything about Lord Atkin from his personal life. I wanted to write a, a quite general book about Lord Atkin, which could be read by the general reader. Uh, but his personal life was so boring that it was impossible. There was nothing in it. Uh, his favorite reading was Edgar Wallace, and he had two sets of Edgar Wallace's novels, one he kept in Abu Dhabi and one in London. <laughs> what else did he do? He played golf and bridge to distraction so that his entire family would put off bridge for life. Well, one could say that, if not in a paragraph, then in a page. But what are we going to do after that? So I was driven to uh, some uh, discussion of his cases. And they, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, from those, it is possible to derive uh, quite clear indications of his views, which was not possible from any other source. Uh, he was of a liberal disposition. Uh, one of his great line of cases was on the Workmen's Compensation Acts when he invariably almost came out on the side of the employee. He was also a traditionalist, and uh, one can see that from the great case, his great descent in Liversidge and Anderson. He was not upholding the liberty of the subject in that case. In fact, he thought that it was right in wartime to lock people up without trial. It was justified. But that case was about the meaning of words. You perhaps remember that uh, he caused a great deal of upset by quoting from Alice through the looking glass uh, in describing the decision of the majority. Humpty Dumpty says... Uh, the words mean exactly what I intend them to mean, neither more nor less. Alice says in reply, uh, the question is, can words bear so many different meanings? And the answer of Humpty Dumpty is, uh, the question is, which shall be master? And now he got into a lot of trouble for that. You remember that um, Lord Morm wrote the newspaper, uh, which was unknown and unheard of, uh, and uh, criticised his fellow judge. 
he was cut dead in the uh, House of Lords dining room by Lord Wright, one of the majority. Uh, feelings ran very high in that case. But in fact, uh, history has proved that uh, Atkin was, was right and his view has been vindicated. Well, my experience uh, has been to drift further away from judicial biography. Um, and I hadn't realized that it was happening. But in writing uh, about um, Hailsham, that's the second Lord Hailsham, and Carson, uh, I realized that the, the real emphasis of the books was not in, in the law so much as in politics, in the widest sense. So that is why I've thought it uh, better tonight to stick to Atkin for my introductory remarks. Thank you very much. Lisa. I'm going to round off and I hope people just can start talking. Um, uh, I'm not a legal biographer, except that my first biography, the first biography I wrote, which was of uh, Francis Bacon, Sir Francis Bacon, obviously was the biography of the Lord Chancellor. Although, um, as far as I'm concerned, the biographies I've written have been biographies of scientists. Uh, intriguingly, all three of the biographies I've written of uh, Sir Francis Bacon, Sir Christopher Wren, and Robert Hooke have all been of men who were scientists but also something else, if not many other things. And I think that's one of the issues which, um, uh, which in a way is masked by a term like judicial biography. Um, I don't call myself a scientific biographer. Um, I call, well, I don't call myself a biographer. I hate biographies. Yes. I don't read biographies. I don't like writing biographies. That's my confession. I accidentally wrote three biographies. Um, of, but, but I have, of, of my 14 books, three are biographies. Um, uh, having said that facetiously, um, I, I was talking to Nikki about why I don't like biography as a form. Um, and it is, it's relentless predictability. You have absolutely no options, um, but that your protagonist is born at the beginning and dies at the end. People have tried other ways of writing <laughs> but they mostly fail. I mean, we talked about a few examples uh, that, that succeed. And there's a rather wonderful, anecdotes rather than examples is what I tend to give, a rather wonderful case from which I was, well, will withhold the names of a very distinguished lady biographer, um, uh, sending a lawyer's letter to one of my own graduate students who had published a book, well, I'm going to have to say it, um, no, who had published a biography of a 16th century individual on the grounds that he had plagiarized her book. Um, and, it, and the grounds that were given in the letter were that um, his book on Sir Philip Sidney had 12 chapters and that Sidney was born in the first chapter and died in the last chapter, and so did hers. And it was a little, but, but it was almost shocking um, that there was in fact no relationship between these two books but there is a way in which biographies um, inevitably move together that's just a sort of general point um, Nikki said um, the only way I could make sense of heart and that was how she went into biography that's really I think how we all end up writing biographies the urge to make sense of somebody who's made an enormous impact on society, um, which we feel can only be done by the recourse to their life. Um, the, the exasperating thing for the biographer is that rather like Humpty Dumpty's words, there are as many ways of doing that as there are stabs at writing somebody's life. Um, I mean, that's fairly obvious, but... Um, it, it, the inevitability of that I find quite depressing as you write a biography. The sense as I write someone's life as opposed to an ideas book where you have a strong idea in your head and you are adducing evidence, the way that I write, um, and colour and uh, illustration to that topic. Uh, the difference with biography is that sense that it's eluding you, that every, with every successive chapter the understanding eludes you further. You offer your reader a certain glimpse of a relationship between the life and the work. But at the very moment that you offer that glimpse, 
you, your own senses of uncertainty um, because of this sense of inclusion and leaving out. Mm. Many of us who work, well, most of us who, in fact, indeed, if you embark on a biography, it's probably because you have an enormous um, database or collection of archives, an enormous amount of material from which you will selectively build a life. Um, that, that's, you know, almost the worst, the worst kind um, of, of project to launch yourself upon is one where there's too much material and you have to find your way through it. To tell you the truth, the 600 pages of Sir Christopher Wren's life, he lived till he was 91, which is frankly the only reason there's 600 pages. But the great advantage of Sir Christopher Wren was that there is remarkably little material. There are the buildings and there is very, very little surviving uh, written material because most of it was destroyed by his family. Another whole topic that we could embark on about the truth of biography. But I want to actually end my little <coughs> very brief introduction. I'm much more interested in talking to my fellow um, panelists about um, their experiences um, alongside my own. Um, the, the, the most, as I listened to particularly our two speakers talking about legal biography or judicial biography, biography bracketing Nikki because she's very um, knowing, I think, about the one that you undertook, is that it is a very fundamental part of the human condition to desire to produce causality as between a life and the outcomes of that life in work. It's almost unavoidable. It's shockingly, shockingly, as Susan Sontag showed, shockingly the case when it comes to serious illness, that people want to produce a reason in the behavior, the conduct of, um, of the person for why they fell ill or why their child was psychotic or why their wife was killed in a car crash. Terrible, terrible human instinct to find causality where there is none. Now, one of the things that was so interesting about the biographies that I was writing which were of people with multi, with diverse outcomes. So a Lord Chancellor who was the father of modern science, um, a, uh, a scientist, Christopher Wren, who was also the architect of the rebuilding of London, um, the first curator of experiments in the Royal Society, Robert Hooke, who also was an engineer and inventor and laid out, was the chief surveyor of London is the impossibility I found in telling their lives of keeping all those threads together. You had to decide almost which of those lives. To, and as soon as you set off on Hook the Surveyor, you seemed to lose sight of Hook the Scientist. As soon as I set off on, um, uh, on Wren, the architect of St. Paul's, I would lose sight of his virtuo virtuosity as a mathematician. And, and, and Bacon was the most difficult of all. So let me just end by saying something about the life hostage fortune that I wrote as Francis Bacon. We it's co-authored with a, a young man who's now a very distinguished professor in, of um, uh, intellectual history in the United States. It's an intellectual biography. I should have said that I would designate all my biographies as being intellectual biographies about the life of the mind and you know, what do we mean by that? Um, Golanks, who were the publishers, got very, very anxious about the fact that we wanted to do Bacon's Law cases. They had never, ever, we had all the documents, absolutely an intact archive, and nobody had wanted to write them up. They're sort of here, but the publisher got very twitchy about it as interrupting the life. So it's sort of an irony for me that, that, that our topic tonight is of um, the outcomes of the, ju the judicial outcomes as being the point of telling the life. In this one, which is very dear to me because it did re recover in a way Francis Bacon, the lawyer, um, there was, you know, we had trouble, great trouble with the publisher and not entirely satisfactory re resolution in our saying there won't be another biography of Francis Bacon for 50 years. It's incumbent on us since we have worked through these damn documents to put the 
the cases in. And you know what? After all I've said about our urge to find causality, if there is one thing I discovered from the life of Francis Bacon, is that it is true that his maxims of the law and his work on his law cases did lay the foundation for, the, for his um, uh, founding scientific method. And that, you know, in a way, if this book, I hope so for anything, it would be for somebody to take up that theme about the relationship between um, Bacon as a common lawyer and Bacon as the father of empirical science. Um, just before throwing it open, um, I would just comment that lawyers, at any rate, counsel believe there is a causal link between the backgrounds of the judges and their decisions because um, if Scottish counsel come to House of Lords, they don't know the judges terribly well. And nowadays, in the old days they looked up who's who, but nowadays everyone does a Google search. Uh, and uh, equally, of course, English counsel do it with the Scottish judges on the, on the House of Lords when they don't know so much. <coughs> so they feel that knowing something about their background and so on um, is, is of relevance in the way they present the, their, their cases and I suppose therefore in the way they hope the outcome uh, will be. Now, uh, commenting also, I, in an article I wrote to, a few years ago after I came to the House of Lords, I commented that I thought I knew, I could guess or knew the political views of, I think I said four of my colleagues. And um, Lord Hoffman came to me, he saw the thing, and he said to me, who were they? Which ones were, did you think you knew their views? And uh, I was very discreet, and I can't yeah. remember what I said about it exactly. But the truth of the matter was that you don't really, you have no feeling that if they have a political life, and some of them do, um, you don't have a feeling that it actually really does impact all that much on their decisions. And so, in one sense, that's... Uh, Robert Stevens, of course, wrote a book um, which analysed a whole lot of the political backgrounds and so on of the, of the judges, and he sought to sort of tie in their, um, their political and background views with uh, what they had done as law lords and so on. And I think it's very difficult to, to show concrete results in that way. So I'm slightly sceptical about the the project of showing up, but certainly that's what council do. Finally, just one thing. I, I think that um, if you take, if you take, let's say, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the Scottish bench, which has been small, as a sort of minor subset of biography, you have the, the art of prosopography, looking at, the, looking at the, the links between people for which you have to look into their lives, who was married to, to whom, who was the brother-in-law of whom, and uh, all that kind of thing. And that does, I think, often produce very interesting results which are of significance when one is trying to work out who, who decided what and why. So that's, uh, these are the, these are some, just some opening remarks. Any questions or comments at all? Yes. Um. Alan Moses. Uh, I think there are two, it's all right. <laughs> two themes that I'm rather disappointed that we touched on, although Jeffrey Lewis did, which expose the real problem with judicial biography, that art is tedious, <laughs> and the ephemeral nature of the, of the law. What is interesting about the old trusted judge is what they were like as a young adult. But it's completely lost because you can't really capture the atmosphere and the process of what advocacy is and how the trial went. It becomes, I mean, even great people afterwards, like Mark Banks, like the Marshall Hall, the first volume of Carson, uh, lose everything. It just becomes a description of a particular murder trial. And it becomes very difficult to write a legal biography that really captures the person, the advocate, the plain and famous their qualities of the judge, which is why I suspect it ends up with an analysis of their judgments. Partly, of course, because they may have been chosen to be a judge because they were boring. There was nothing very exciting about their personal background. Uh. The, the, the other thing is that you haven't touched upon is the enormously hopeless task of any writing any interesting judicial autobiography. They are almost
myself uh, to make a court and a court case come alive uh, it would have to be fiction and not fact 
because, as Alan Moses says, uh, it, it's the tedium of ploughing through years and years of reports and trying to extract something of real interest to the general reader. But what you, what, what is in fiction that you extract? That's the point. I mean, no, no, I mean it must be a great novel to, to describe it. Don't, but it, I mean, the art, the art of the biographer ultimately is that of sifting enormous piles of evidence. That's, yeah. um, I mean, no, um, uh, Michael Holroyd, you know, the, um, uh, Hermione Lee, mm. their gift in, you know, is for um, perseverance and the ability to keep somehow a sense of a, of a, a shape and a vision and an imagination. I still wouldn't want to call that fiction. Well, I think that uh, a detailed account of forensic triumphs is almost bound to fail, written on the page. And that's why I think it needs a novelist to describe it. Uh, it's wonderful if, when you're there, but to put it down on paper kills its stone dead, mostly. <laughs> Can I perhaps um, uh, advance a, a, a slightly more optimistic view of legal biography and the techniques of legal biography? I mean, uh, speaking as someone who, on the whole, has not found them tedious, but on the contrary, found them uh, really quite interesting and even um, inspiring, some of them. Um, and I think especially when they're written by people who are legally qualified, as, as uh, almost all the members of the panel are. Um, and I wonder whether the reason for that is because what uh, people are trying to do, at least, is to identify something about um, the way the legal figure thinks and, and perhaps, in a wider sense, the way the legal figure behaves. I mean, this was something that Nikki touched on in saying that um, what she was looking at in part was a sort of um, I think the phrase was a, a method of comportment um, and um, it seems to me that that's a common thread, a common theme in many if not all legal biographies is that what you're trying to do is to show the way the person operated and I think there's an analogy with political biography because some of the best political biographies have been written by politicians. Um, I happen to have read quite recently the biography of, of Robert Peel by Douglas Hurd, which I found absolutely brilliant because he sets Peel's work in a sort of political context and shows how he operated politically. And um, in a similar way, I think many legal biographies, some may not do it very well, some, some may at times be quite boring, but at least you get a sense of the way people who on the whole were quite good at their job operated, whether as advocates or as judges, and thought and um, uh, uh, developed their craft. And, and that's what I think is educational about those books. Uh, and um, I think perhaps the relative lack of focus on biography that one sees these days, particularly, about, particularly among people joining the profession, is for that reason rather a pity. Uh, there's just, I think, one issue which I would like to uh, raise, which is that um, it's been, seems to be widely assumed that there is potentially at any rate a great deal of material available for legal biography generally and judicial biography in particular. I don't think that's true. There are very few archives. One of the reasons why Nicky Lacey's book is so excellent, uh, one of the reasons uh, is that she had uh, an extremely valuable archive which enabled her to reveal what this strange troubled man uh, was thinking about and doing. That's very, very rare in the lives of lawyers. But I think personally that there is quite a legitimate interest 
in the lives, particularly of judges, and particularly at a time when we are moving towards with uh, the uh, Human Rights Act, uh, but also other uh, legislation, there is a legitimate interest in asking the question, what makes these people tick? What makes them uh, have the attitudes? There is a view, and this is reinforced, I think, by the new way in which judges are being appointed, that there are, this is purely an objective matter, that values don't count. I think that's very questionable. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it isn't an objective which we should strive towards. But I question whether it could be supported. And uh, with some people who've held judicial office, we do, of course, know quite a lot about their personal lives. But this is very unusual. One of them is uh, Lord Helsham, uh, in part because he was uh, a very active uh, political figure. And anybody who's considered his life second, much less anybody who's read uh, Geoffrey Lewis's excellent biography, know that Hailsham was an extremely emotional man. And actually, here again, these things tend to be forgotten, but I am old enough to remember the great human crisis and the appearance of Hailsham on television uh, when the fact that uh, Profumo had lied to the House of Commons was revealed. Wasn't I enough? Today, probably, it would have ruled him out from appointment to any judicial office because he was clearly out of control. And what this revealed was actually apparent in a lot of his other activities, as I think, was that he was a deeply emotional man who believed very firmly in right and wrong and that he believed very clearly that he knew the difference between right and wrong. And this reveals itself, actually, in my view, in one or two of the decisions which he came to. There is a case which used to be known to all students of uh, family law, uh, in which a county court judge had been hearing an application to eject uh, a man uh, from the matrimonial home. Uh, and uh, the argument was, well, uh, this is the only way in which we can secure the welfare of the child. And the county court judge very foolishly had said, well, um, it's unjust to do this, but there seems to be, to be nothing about justice in this part of the law. So out he goes. That case got to the House of Lords. Lord Hailsham presiding. Why was he presiding? That's a separate question, but he was presiding. And he uh, delivered, in many ways, an impeccable judgment, saying, well, this is a matter of statute, and uh, counsel seem not to have been aware of that, and so on and so forth, extremely legalistic. But reading between the lines, even on the basis of what I've said so far, you might think that it was the statement by the first instance judge, justice doesn't come into it, which really made him extremely angry. And it becomes even more, uh, is the background, are the facts of the life of the individual relevant? If you read in Geoffrey Lewis's book uh, about Hailsham's own personal life, uh, one of the um, uh, most significant events in which, I mean, there are actually very many, but one of the most significant events in which was his returning from active service in World War II uh, to find his wife, uh, as he, Hailsham, put it, in the arms of a free French officer. And the words free French were obviously themselves of significance to him. Uh, and uh, he uses expressions like, in correspondence to people at the time, that uh, this man came into my house, and so on and so forth. And actually, if you then look at the judgment in the case which I've just referred to, you'll find that almost exactly that terminology is used. Here was a man who, who's, it was his house. Why should we throw out milk, etc., etc., etc.? 
And I mean, that's a crude example that uh, I think is quite useful. One of my uh, concerns is actually that we don't collect sufficient information about the personalities of judges. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I yield to Jeffrey Lewis, who, of course, notwithstanding his apparent uh, <laughs> lack of enthusiasm for revealing this, is a solicitor. Uh, um, uh, but I feel that many solicitors feel that, and have always felt, uh, that uh, you can um, predict what certain judges are getting at. And here again, just finally, if I can just reveal, uh, the research I'm doing at the moment shows the Attorney General, uh, Reginald Manning Buller at the time, taking a great deal of trouble to keep one judge, namely uh, Mr. Justice Roxburgh, off the court, off the trial of a particular case uh, which involved um, issues, so to speak, of high policy. And uh, he was successful in that. And he certainly believed that if Roxburgh had tried it, it would have been decided uh, incompatibly with the government's wishes, <laughs> to put it crudely. It's perfectly right, actually. Don't worry, because it went to the Court of Appeal and House of Lords. And uh, the judge who did sit at first instance Justice Daisy was happily reversed uh, by those tribunals. But even so, I mean, clearly, uh, but I think, actually, I'd be surprised, I don't know what members of the bar feel, that uh, you can predict what attitudes are going to be taken on uh, issues of social Well, I'll just make two points. First, um, I agree with a lot of what Stephen has said. And I can give an anecdote, I think, of how Hailsham and his attitudes were only too apparent in the case I argued. It was a tax case. Um, and I was for the Attorney General, and the question was whether the purposes of this trust were exclusively charitable or not. If they were, then you wouldn't have to pay tax. Um, if they weren't exclusively charitable, they would. And um, we lost twice below. Uh, it was a trust for promoting football. Uh, and the question was whether it was educational to promote football. <laughs> and uh, when I stood up for the Attorney General in the House of Lords, supporting the trustees who had lost, uh, I started to cite the cases on the meaning of education, saying it had always been given a generous meaning in the courts. And Hailsham interrupted me and said, Education, he said, you don't have to tell me what it is. He said, I was minister of it twice. <laughs> and, uh, and he produced, he was sitting as Lord Chancellor, and he produced a most wonderful judgment, which uh, I didn't cite Plato or Socrates. <laughs> he went right back to healthy body, healthy mind, and it's a wonderful judgment, a great sweep about, you know, how court shouldn't take narrow technical uh, views about what's meant by education and uh, teaching people to play games. Uh, there, was all, there were all these ridiculous cases about how chess might be education because it was intellectual, <laughs> but um, uh, uh, games outside wouldn't be because you didn't actually learn anything. It was obviously ludicrous drawing these distinctions, and Hailsham saw that and said you could learn a lot playing football, which you couldn't, you know, which was education, which you couldn't learn in a classroom. Uh, and so he was quite obvious that his, uh, you know, his attitudes were affected by his in that case, his political experience, and I think his own personal experience of education. Um, That's the first thing I wanted to say. The second is this. Do the people on the panel think that, in fact, there is some kind of biography which has value as social history? And what I'm thinking of is more collective biographies. For example, I got very interested in a family which really dominated the judiciary and the English legal profession <laughs> from the middle of the 16th century until the end of the 17th century, the Finch family. They are absolutely incredible. Uh, and were, it was a whole family of lawyers. Uh, Lord uh, uh, Heenage Finch wrote to be Lord Chancellor, but there were so many Heenage Finches that historians have become confused. Uh, some became speakers of the House of Commons, some became recorders of London. Uh, it was an incredible family uh, which uh, accumulated enormous wealth, I think, uh, within 150 years, they accumulated no less than 30 peerages in the family. 
everybody was a pair, and, they, and everybody who wasn't a pair married one. And they are a most incredible family uh, who started as minor gentry in East Kent. You know, they were wealthy farmers, and in the end they became highly political. And to write a history of that family would tell you an enormous amount about Tudor and Stuart politics. Uh, immediately yes. jump in. I mean, A, the Finches is a wonderful topic, but I actually think that in the light of this panel, it's a lovely way to have come round for this evening because um, it's true that collective biography is the next, uh, the next form of biography. Um, uh, Lunar Men by Jenny Uglo um, was a wonderful, wonderful start. And the reason for that is exactly as our last two contributions have made clear, which is that we are fully understanding now that you can't take a single life and tease out its meaning. It's always in the networks and intersections with others. So um, if I ever did write another biography, it would be a collective. Yes. Comment, because um, I'd just like to take up Lisa's point about the obsession with um, causality. Um, for instance, I'm here this evening because I came for a, a lecture which is going to happen tomorrow evening. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, if anyone was misguided enough to write my biography, they'd say, what the hell was she doing at that biographical? Um, so I, I think we, we really, there are, we are always prone to misjudgments in everyday life about uh, people, even those we know well, perhaps intimately. And that brings me back to Alan's point about discretion, which linked to yours about causality. It seems to me um, two very interesting pivots because here we have what you might call causality being the scientific open intimacy of a life, which is the work, perhaps the thoughts, perhaps the materials. And here is Alan's looking at what is probably one of the factors in training any legal mind, particularly that of a judge, in his experience is the discretion factor. So you then have the hidden intimacy. And really, I think the skill of a good biographer is to be able to match that. And I must say, as a three, three-day holiday, supposedly walking the hills of Scotland, I took Nicola Lacey's biography of Herbert Hart. I was very pleased to read it. Three days of rain, uh, Nicola. Um, I, I thought, if I may say so now, how deftly you manage to, 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 to do that, um, manage the balance between the hidden intimacies and the open and remain true to your task. I'm going to wrap it up now. I'm going to ask each of the panel to uh, make any contribution they want to. We've lost our uh, Lord Roger who had to go to a dinner. That's why he was dressed in the way he was. Um, but uh, maybe we'll start from Lisa and come towards me. Do you want to make any comments about I think, I think whether as or a, not as we're, a, we're I engaged? Think as a non-lawyer, as a non-lawyer, I remain intrigued and concerned by a certain consensus in the room that the life will help you with the judgments. And the wonderful anecdotes about reading people because of what you know about their life or reading a judgment in the light of the life, they, for me, run exactly the other way, which is almost like that lovely randomness of being in the wrong lecture, which is it's the absolute, almost inconsequential randomness of actually having a witness to that incident, somebody making that judgment at that particular moment. So I would have to say that at the end of this evening, my sense is of a flux so intense that it confirms me in my decision that I will never write another biography. <laughs> 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 Just very briefly, I, I agree that the idea of collective biography is a really interesting one, and I think if I ever did another one, it would be collective. But I also think my, my own view is that any good biography is inevitably a form of social history. Geoffrey. Mm. Um, the point about archives, sometimes you can be lucky, and uh, with Hailsham, I was very lucky. He kept uh, a diary while he was Lord Chancellor. Uh, the engagements were on one page, and on the facing page, there was a short account uh, in a code, which would have defied Bletchley Park, uh, of what happened at the interview. <coughs> and uh, I think I said in the book, um, 
uh, described his interview with Sir Henry Fisher. You may remember that um, he didn't last long on the bench, uh, and Hailsham called him in to explain himself when he was Lord Chancellor. And uh, Fisher said, uh, I'm bored, which was a terrible thing to say to someone like Hailsham. Uh, So Hailsham said, well, it won't do, you know. It's like marriage. Um, Fisher said, no, it isn't like marriage the way you put it. It's like ordination to the priesthood. (laughs) Well, sometimes you can be lucky. Neil. The person I wrote about, um, Frederick Pollock, was um, he, 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 in situations like this, would just say, I have nothing to say. And one thing I, it was something I got out of doing that sort of exercise, it was some sort of courage. Um, I sort of read Pollock and got into his life a little bit, and I quite liked the fact that he was willing sometimes to stand up and say, no, I have nothing worthwhile saying, so I'm going to follow his example. <laughs> Look, on, on your behalf... I want to thank each of the panellists, Lisa Jardine, Dickie Lacey, Geoffrey Lewis and Neil Duxbury. And I want to thank you. Compared with last week, you're a small and but very select audience. So thanks very much for coming. And you can thank the panel.